Hello everyone um, and welcome to our second part of our pharmacology podcast. This is Jeanette Jones and today we're going to be discussing medication preparation and dosing. In particular for this part of the podcast we'll be focusing on medication preparation. Um, as always this podcast is meant to be used as a supplemental resource so you'll want to make sure that you're using this in conjunction with your course readings, your uh, topic pages, and anything else that can be found within your lesson folders. Uh, In particular, for this section of the podcast, you'll want to make sure that you are referring to chapter four of your course readings. So in covering medication preparation, first we want to define uh, drug form. Now drug form uh, refers to the type of preparation in which the drug is supplied. Uh, Typically, uh, we can use the terms drug form and drug preparation simultaneously or interchangeably. Now pharmaceutical companies prepare each drug in the form or forms that are most suitable for its intended route of delivery and means of absorption. If you recall back to our previous podcasts as well as your previous readings in chapter three of your textbook, uh, that the main types of routes of administration are enteral, which is via the GI tract, or parenteral, which is essentially all other routes not involving the GI tract. You'll also want to recall that parenteral refers to injections, topical administrations such as skin or mucosal, transdermal, and the inhalation route. Uh, We're going to be summarizing the various uh, different drug forms um, for the different types of routes of administration. We'll be highlighting what they are and some even discussing some advantages or disadvantages of that type of drug form. Now some of these may be very familiar to you, uh, but again we want to provide a a summary overview for you. So first the oral drug forms. Uh, First is the tablet. Now tablets are discs of compressed drugs. Um, Something that can be found on a tablet is that it may be scored, which is essentially that it's evenly divided in halves or quarters by score lines. Now the purpose of this is to enhance equal distribution of the drug if the tablet was ever to be broken. So if a physician orders half a tab, you would want to utilize a scored tablet to ensure that the drug is evenly distributed amongst those halves of the tablet. An enterocoded tablet is essentially a tablet with a special coating, and this coating dissolves as you get down the GI tract into the enteric or the intestinal region. Um, this can be serve a, a variety of purposes. One of them is if a drug in particular is irritating to the stomach, like aspirin, uh, then it can be available in this enteric coating. Um, you want to make sure that you're educating patients that this type of tablet, the enterocoded tablet, should never be chewed or crushed because that would essentially destroy the coating on the outside and kind of defeat the purpose. A capsule is a drug contained within a gelatin type container. Now these are typically easier to swallow than non-coated tablets Um, and also another feature is that the double chamber could be pulled apart uh, to add drug powder to soft foods or beverages for patients who are having difficulty swallowing. Uh, You always want to make sure that you're reading drug labels, drug reference material uh, to make sure that this isn't contraindicated for absorption for that drug but for intensive purposes, uh, for our for our um, knowledge, uh, in general, a capsule can be pulled apart and be administered um, via the powder in foods or beverages for someone having difficulty swallowing. 
And now there's also sustained release capsules or tablets. And basically this form of drug preparation is designed to deliver a dose of drug over an extended period of time. So one of the advantages of this form of drug um, is that you have to take it less often. Again, because the effects are for a longer period of time, you have to take it less often. Um, however, we wanna make sure that uh, these sustained release forms are not crushed or mixed with foods unless specifically allowed by the drug manufacturer uh, because then uh, this would essentially result in a sustained release dose being released all at one time. Um, this immediate type of release of a drug like this could lead to a potential overdose. So again, patient education is very important. Uh, a lozenge is essentially a tablet that's indicated for having um, essentially a soothing effect on the mouth or the throat. So uh, we wanna teach patients not to swallow this lozenge and just to allow it to slowly dissolve in the mouth. The idea is that um, the lozenge is going to coat the mouth and the throat. And so we also wanna teach patients not to drink liquids for approximately 15 minutes after they take a lozenge or they would essentially just wash away the lozenge. Um, a suspension is a liquid form of medication uh, where the drug particles are gonna settle at the bottom. And so to make sure that the drug is evenly dispersed through the liquid, uh, we have to make sure that this is shaken very well uh, before we administer it. An emulsion is another liquid type of preparation that contains oils and fats in water. Elixir is another type of uh, liquid form, um, essentially where the liquid drug form is also accompanied with an alcohol base. A few things about this to note is we have to use this cautiously in small children. Uh, because of the alcohol base, this should not be available to alcoholics. And we also wanna make sure that the cap is tightly on um, this medication uh, bottle to prevent alcohol evaporation. Uh, other drug forms uh, for these liquids are syrups. Uh, so this is a sweetened, flavored liquid drug form, often for children. Um, and then a solution, which is a liquid drug form in which the drug is already totally evenly dissolved. Um, and so it's clear rather than cloudy like the suspension that we were just talking about. Um, so many of these drug forms for the oral route are available over the counter. And um, like we talked about in a previous podcast and chapter, could have a thousand of, um, of trade name products. Uh, the oral route, remember, is the easiest and probably the cheapest for administration. However, it is not the routine choice, uh, route of choice for um, emergency treatment, if there's acute pain, if the patient can't have anything by mouth, or if the patient's not able to swallow for whatever reason. So that's when we might have to look to other drug routes. So other drug routes that we want to briefly summarize is rectal drug forms. So rectal drug forms include a suppository, which is basically a drug suspended in a substance such as cocoa butter that melts at body temperature, and an enema. And this, um, in an enema, a drug can either be a suspension, so you have to shake it up first, or a solution um, where it's already evenly administered to be administered as an enema. Uh, remember, the rectal route of administration is often the best choice if the patient is ordered to have nothing by mouth or if they can't swallow. Uh, the mo most common reasons why we would give something rectally um, or the most common types of drugs that we would give rectally would be laxatives, sedatives, um, antiemetics, or those that prevent vomiting, and antipyretics, or those that reduce fever. Uh, moving on to injectable drug forms. Injectable drug forms can include a liquid or a drug suspension or dissolved in a sterile vehicle. 
um, a powder, which this is dry particles of drugs. The powder itself would not be injected, but what you would do is you would mix that with a sterile diluting solution like saline or sterile water. And when you mix that together, it's termed reconstitution of a drug. Um, so the drug would be supplied undiluted and um, essentially it allows it to remain, um, remain stable until it's diluted. Um, the, another form um, that we can look at for injectable is intravenous, and this is injected directly into a vein. Uh, remember, this results in immediate absorption and availability to major organs, which is why this uh, route of drug administration could be very dangerous. Um, you could administer IV drugs via IV push, IV infusion or IV drip, or an IV piggyback. There's intramuscular, which is injected into a muscle. Um, typically, you're going to use a uh, one inch needle, and this would be for um, adults or average sized persons, um, at a 90 degree angle into the muscle. Absorption is fairly rapid due to the vascularity or the presence of a lot of blood vessels in the muscle itself. Uh, subcutaneous, uh, this type of um, drug form has the drug be injected into the fatty layer of tissue below the skin. Uh, typically, uh, you use about a 5 eighths of an inch needle um, and can use about a 45 degree angle. Now, depending on the girth uh, of the person, um, you may be able to use a 90 degree angle and a slightly longer needle. But again, commonly, this is a 5 eighth inch needle a tongue twister and a 45 degree angle. Uh, intradermal is injected just beneath the skin um, and what you do is you use a very um, small amount of drug um, at a 15 degree angle and the drug is just administered right underneath the skin. Because there's not a lot of vascularity or not a lot of blood vessels in this area, um, the absorption is very slow. Um, typically this is used for allergy skin testing and it can also be used for tuberculin skin tests or PPD tests. Epidural. Epidural is injected um, into a catheter that's been placed by an anesthesiologist into the epidural space of the spinal canal. Um, medications for pain can be administered into this catheter, catheter by a bolus or just a small amount via syringe or continuously. Um, catheters, excuse me, epidural catheters um, can be used for administration of opioid analgesics, um, chemotherapy, etc. Um, there are some other less common parenteral routes, again, bypassing the GI tract, um, and are usually limited to a physician's administration. Uh, some of those briefly are intraosseous, which are directly into the marrow of a long bone. Intraventricular, which is where a drug is directly injected into the brain, um, or the brain ventricle specifically, via catheter. Uh, intraspinal, injected into the subarachnoid space uh, in the spinal cord, which the subarachnoid space is where cerebral spinal fluid is. And then intracapsular or intraarticular is injected into the capsule of the joint, uh, typically to reduce inflammation uh, like in bursitis. Other drug forms are topical drug forms. So topical drug forms can be a cream or an ointment. Uh, creams and ointments are not the same, um, and the dose used for each of those can differ. Uh, creams tend to be more aqueous in nature, meaning that they are composed of more water-based ingredients than an ointment is. Uh, other topical forms uh, are lotions, liniments, 
in transdermal patches. A transdermal patch is a skin patch that contains drug molecules that are absorbed through the skin at a variety of rates uh, to promote a consistent blood level of the drug between application times. So this is effective for long periods of time, um, hours for some drugs and days for others. And again, it helps to lend itself to providing consistent blood level of drug because the drug is released at varying rates rather than all at one time. Uh, transdermal patches vary in size, shape, and color, and they can treat uh, a number of uh, diseases. Uh, your book specifically uh, gives some um, additional information and shows you some pictures regarding um, nitroglycerin ointment and how it can be applied either via a cream um, onto the skin um, or via via this transdermal patch and ointment administration. So you'll see that there. Um, again, uh, the nitroglycerin is the ointment, the transdermal patch, which you'll see within your textbook. Um, other drug preparations that are considered topical are those that are applied to your mucosal membrane. So these are things like eye, ear, and nose drops, eye ointments, vaginal creams, rectal and vaginal suppositories, douche solutions, buccal tablets, and sublingual tablets. Uh, just a couple things about buccal and sublingual tablets. So a buccal tablet is a tablet that is absorbed via your buccal mucosa in the mouth or your cheek. Um, patients, you want to make sure that patients would be educated to not swallow this. Um, it's supposed to be placed between the cheek and the gums and then it's just to dissolve slowly. Um, sublingual tablet is often preferred, uh, but again with a sublingual tablet, the patient um, also should be educated not to swallow it. It should be placed under the tongue and allowed to dissolve slowly. Um, speaking of nitroglycerin, nitroglycerin can also be given via the route of sublingual. Uh, implantable devices. Implantable devices are available in a variety of sizes and basically they are placed um, just below the skin near blood vessels where the medication can then be absorbed into the bloodstream. Um, an example of this would be a small infusion pump uh, that's implanted in a diabetic uh, to deliver continuous supply of insulin. Um, interestingly, I thought it was really interesting in reading here, uh, there's an innovative uh, type of drug form uh, where the drug is essentially placed between two really thin plastic membranes and then it's put into the person's eyelid. Um, and then this essentially has a controlled release of medication over an extended period of time. So very interesting, but essentially the main thing of an implantable device is it can come in a lot of varieties, but it's placed below the skin, it's near a blood vessel so it can be absorbed. Uh, inhalation drug forms. The inhalation route is very fast acting. So you can think of it as second to the IV route. So IV route would be the fastest, then inhalation drug forms. It's very effective for delivering humidification and medication right into the respiratory system. Um, so typically a liquid drug is placed in a device that creates a fine mist or an aerosol um, that places the medication into tiny droplets that are then inhaled into the respiratory system. Um, so in a hospital setting, this can be in the form of a nebulizer at home. This can be in a small volume nebulizer, a meter dose inhaler, or a dry powdered inhaler. Uh, quickly, we're going to summarize some of the supplies that would be utilized when administering a variety of drug forms. And so that would be the medicine cup, an individual pill crusher and pill cutter, 
Um, also, medications that can be injected might come in different uh, looking um, forms. Uh, it could come in an ampule, which is a small glass container. Um, the ampule would have to be broken at the neck in order to get the solution out, and you would want to use a filter needle for that. Uh, a vial, uh, which is a glass container that's sealed at the top by a rubber uh, stopper. Um, and you can either have multi-dose vials, which contains a large quantity of the solution, um, and you would uh, use a syringe, different syringes, but the rubber stopper could be accessed repeatedly to remove portion of the contents. Um, and then a unit dose vial contains just a small amount of solution, sometimes one to two milliliters. Um, and essentially, just like it sounds, this vial is really meant for one-time use. Um, needles. Needles for injections have two measurements that you want to take note of. First is the length of the needle itself. And so this can range from uh, short, like a three-eighths of an inch, um, all the way up to five inches that may be used for intraspinal or intraosseous ruts. Um, a gauge is the number that represents the diameter of the needle lumen or the opening, so how big the needle is itself. Um, needle gauges um, are very commonly uh, you know, used, obviously, and assessed by healthcare providers. Um, and with the gauge of a needle, the smaller the number refers to a larger gauge. So 16 would be the largest, all the way to a 31, which would be the smallest. Uh, now syringes, there are three most common types of disposable syringes. Those three most common types are hypodermic syringes, a tuberculin syringe or a TB syringe, and insulin syringe. So hypodermic, tuberculin, and insulin. So the hypodermic syringe uh, has a capacity of about two to three milliliters. Uh, it's typically prepackaged, and you can use this for either a subcutaneous or IM injections. So you can choose a needle length and gauge appropriate to attach to this standard hypodermic syringe. Um, all hypodermic syringes are marked with 10 calibrations per milliliter. Uh, the insulin syringe is used strictly for administering insulin to those that need it. Um, insulin should be measured only in an insulin syringe. And the standard insulin syringe has a one milliliter capacity, which is equivalent to 100 units of insulin. textbook will provide you some visual pictures as well. Now the tuberculin or TB syringe is uh, very narrow, very finely calibrated. So just like the insulin syringe, it has a total capacity of one ml. There are 100 calibration lines marking the capacity. So each line re represents 0.01 mls. Um, it's extremely important that you would interpret the value of the calibration on each of the syringes. Uh, you want to make sure that you would study the calibrations each time you prepare for an injection to prevent a medication error occurring from negligent misinterpretation. So all insulin dosages should be double checked by two caregivers as well. That could be um, somewhat facility dependent, but that is a, a high risk medication. Um, oral syringes. So. Uh, you do want to be aware that some oral liquids can be uh, pulled up in disposable plastic syringes um, and that's how you would administer them. So these syringes would be clearly labeled not for injection or for oral use 
only. Uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, has mandated that every effort be made to reduce the risk of needle stick injuries so that we can mitigate uh, the spread of HIV, hepatitis B, or hepatitis C. Um, so the recommendations from OSHA are that safety needles um, either have a protective sheath that covers the needle um, or that uh, the safety needle is such that it retracts, the needle retracts into the syringe. Um, they also recommend the use of needleless devices for IV um, push medications, IV piggybacks, or IV tubing um, whenever possible. All right, I hope you found this uh, portion of the podcast helpful regarding medication preparation. Um, as always, please let me know if you have any questions or concerns. Hello, fabulous pharmacology students. Welcome to another part of our medication preparation and dosing podcast. Uh, This is Jeanette Jones, and in this portion of the podcast, we're going to be talking about measurements and safe dosing. Uh, As always, you want to make sure that you're using this alongside your other course resources. Um, And in particular, for this podcast, you're going to want to reference chapter five. All right, so uh, again, in this podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, measurements and safe dosing, uh, specifically abbreviations and some systems of measurement. Uh, So when we're talking about abbreviations, interpretation of the medication order um, is obviously the first responsibility of a healthcare professional when that person is going to be preparing medications for administration. So it's really helpful to know the medical abbreviations um, and symbols that uh, would need that may come up um, during uh, the physician's order. And so again, it would be really important uh, as the person that's gonna be administering this medication or preparing it for administration to recognize these common abbreviations and symbols. Um, When in doubt, uh, if you are not able to discern what letter is what or you're confused about what the abbreviation might be from a physician's order, then when in doubt, you always wanna question the meaning never guess because obviously real errors um, can happen by just guessing um, when trying to interpret a physician's order. So uh, that being said, your textbook does have a really nice reference for table 5-1 where it talks about common abbreviations for medication orders. So that will be an important tool for you to reference. Uh, I do want to point out that some abbreviations that are on table 5-1 are on the Institute for Safe Medication Practices or the ISMB's uh, list of error-prone abbreviations. So you'll really want to uh, pay attention to that. Um, The reason that they're found in Table 5-1 is because they still might be important for you to identify, but again, be aware that some um, essentially banned abbreviations can be found on that table. So that being said, the ISMP or the Institute for Safe Medication Practice Uh, monitors for and categorizes medication errors. And so they've come up uh, with a list of error-prone abbreviation symbols and dose designations, um, which goes alongside the Joint Commission's uh, do not use list. And so uh, your textbook also has figure 5-1, which contains this list of error-prone abbreviations. And these do not list 
terms or, or symbols are going to be highlighted with a double asterisk or a double star um, so that you can refer to that. So figure 5-1 will help you see uh, which ones um, are on that do not use list. Uh, other safety practices that we want to make sure that we're following so that we can um, avoid uh, errors whenever possible um, is to really note uh, the different parts of a medication order um, and make sure that all of those things are part of the medication order. Um, in addition, before giving or taking a medication order, you also want to make sure that the patient's allergies have been reviewed. Uh, the six parts, basic parts of a medication order are date and time that the order was taken, the patient's name, the medication name, the dosage and or amount of the medication, the route or manner of administration, so what we've been talking about in previous podcasts, so this might be an oral route or a subcutaneous route, and then directions for use, so including the time to be administered and or how frequently it should be administered. So those six parts of a medication order, one more time, are date and time that the order was taken, the patient's name, the medication name, dosage or amount of medication, route or manner of administration, and directions for use. Um, you want to note that medications would always need to be written and or signed by a physician um, in an emergency situation or depending on the facility, the physician may give a verbal order, um, but remember that it's always the responsibility of the healthcare professional that's receiving the order, if it's verbal, to read back and confirm the order. Again, when in doubt, any questions, always ask. You also want to determine the policy at your facility or agency before taking a telephone order as well. Um, medication orders can also be written um, within the patient's record. Um, and uh, because of the widespread use of electronic patient records, um, these could just be entered right into that electronic system. So these could be referred to as computerized physician order entry. Um, there could be an e-prescribing um, type of electronic healthcare record or the electronic medication administration record or the EMAR is how um, administered medications are electronically recorded in the patient's healthcare record. Again, you want to make sure that um, the healthcare professional that's going to be uh, following through with the order, administering the medication, is checking those six parts. And um, again, it would be their responsibility to question any discrepancies, omissions, or any type of unusual order. All right, moving to systems of measurement. And so um, it's also very important, just like it's important for us to, or, or any healthcare professional that's going to be administering medications or taking a um, physician's order for a medication to understand abbreviations and symbols, it's also important uh, that the person administering medications has an understanding of the different systems of measurement. And so um, really we're gonna be focusing on three systems of measurement. Uh, that's the apothecary system, the metric system, and the household system. Now the apothecary system was the original system of weights and measures that was used for writing medications. Uh, the term apothecary actually referred to the pharmacist or the druggist that would have been preparing 
um, these drugs. Uh, the apothecary system is has essentially become obsolete. We don't uh, frequently see that. It's very rare to see apothecary terms, but it's good to know that that was the original system. Uh, the second system, the metric system, is the preferred system of measurement, and that's what we currently use uh, in the healthcare system. The third system of measurement is the household system. Uh, this is the least accurate, but this system is probably going to be the most familiar to a layperson, and therefore that's why it's used in prescribing medications for the patient at home. So uh, again, we're gonna be focusing on the metric system since that's the preferred system. So that's what we'll be focusing on first. Uh, the metric system is based on three basic units of measure, the liter for volume, uh, represented by a capital L, the meter or a lowercase m for length, and the gram or lowercase g for weight. So liter for volume, meter for length, gram for weight. A prefix representing a power of 10 can be placed before each of these basic units to change its value. So for example, the prefix milli means one thousandth, and therefore a milligram would be one thousandth of a gram. Um, another way of stating this is that 1,000 milligrams equals one gram. Because all prefixes are based on the powers of 10, to convert within the metric system, you simply need to move the decimal point to the correct number of places um, of the power of 10 that that prefix represents. So thankfully, uh, we don't have to memorize these equivalents, uh, but rather just know that the milli represents 1,000. Um, and so we would simply have to move the decimal point three places to the right when converting grams to milligrams or even liters to milliliters. And uh, table 5-2 um, shows a nice uh, layout of metric equivalents uh, from grams to milligrams and how those um, are converted. Uh, the household system, uh, again, this is going to be the most familiar system to laypersons. Um, and so that's typically why we still utilize it. Uh, table 5-3 is going to give you the common approximate equivalents for liquid measurement. Now again, this is the least accurate, um, so we want to make sure that uh, you know we really are, are honed in to, to what these uh, uh, are equal to. So for example, one teaspoon is equal to five milliliters metric, one tablespoon in the household uh, system of measurement is equal to 15 milliliters. And again, table 5-3 will show you some other approximate equivalents for liquid measurement using uh, the household system versus the metric system. Uh, the equipment most commonly used for measuring medications, again, includes the, the equipment we talked about in the previous section of this podcast, which were the medicine cup and then a variety of syringes that are calibrated in milliliters. Um, although most countries use the metric system as their official measurement, we do know that in the United States, we still have the English system of measurement where we have things like ounces, pounds, feet, etc. So oftentimes we do still have to convert something from the English system to metric, uh, particularly when we're weighing patients. So again, we utilize pounds, but a lot of times drugs are ordered on a per kilogram dose. Uh, so we have to make sure that we know how to convert that English 
system of pounds to the metric kilogram. So the important conversion factor for that is that one kilogram equals 2.2 pounds. Again, we have to be very careful in calculating the weight in kilograms, uh, especially for pediatric doses, um, because if we don't, that could be uh, very serious and very fatal. Uh, so again, this is uh, a quicker uh, portion of the podcast in which we just reviewed common abbreviations and systems of measurement. I hope you find this resource helpful. Uh, please let me know if you have any questions or concerns.